Hello everyone, you're listening to America Meditating Radio. We collect wisdom, inspire each other, and empower hearts on demand 24-7. I'm Sister Jenna, host of the syndicated America Meditating Radio. Join us as we talk one-on-one with leading experts who answer life's most compelling questions. Because in a world of uncertainty, we need answers right here, right now. America Meditating Radio, a show for everyone to learn more about this amazing thing called life. Om Shanti. The time that we choose to be aware doesn't necessarily require me to just sit and meditate. But even while I walk and move around, I can be in a meditative awareness, which is awareness of the soul, the original, eternal, imperishable being of light. For a little while, I'd like to invite you to be present, to be here, and to be now. Allow your mind to settle in the moment, to relax. This meditation is about awareness. It's about becoming aware of your original and eternal self. It's about connecting to your truth. Let go of your name. And observe yourself feeling nameless. Let go of your gender to discontinue thinking you're a man or a woman. Let it go and observe how you would feel walking around without a gender. Let go of the role that you play and let go of the titles that you own. Observe how you're feeling as you are gradually letting go. Let go of your religion and put it aside just for now. And let go of your nationality and even the language that you're accustomed to. Imagine you have no name, gender, role, title, religion, nationality, or even a language. Ask yourself. How do you feel at this moment? And in this feeling, who would think of you and who would you think of? the Supreme Soul would think of you and you the liberated soul would think of the Supreme in this state of absolute freedom I am truly 
who I am. A free, peaceful, pure, immortal, and eternal soul. Allow yourself to just be absorbed in this awareness. At this time, Welcome to America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna. That was Letting Go from Inclusion Revolution Together with Love album, produced by yours truly. Gosh, what are we looking for now in these incredible times of transformation, transitioning, evolving, letting go, holding on, realizing, coming to some sort of a deep, deep, deep sense of self and introspection. When you look at it from that perspective, it all feels like it was all good, it was all purposeful, that, yes, it all had a meaning for occurring. But when you're going through something very personal, it's harder for you to take it with that kind of insight. I'll tell you a short story. Today, we were doing something outside of the house, and something had happened in the early morning hours, which had been connected to a discussion that had taken place, it was from a discussion that took place the day before, and the person had acknowledged that they knew what they were going to do. Needless to say, the next day, the person didn't do what they were to have done, and it impacted a lot of other people, including folks that were involved. And as I went walking around the island today, I was saying to myself, I share with people all the time not to take things personally. But you know what? No matter what in life, the mere fact that you put energy into something, there's a natural law of energy that says, I expect a return. And the expecting of the return isn't based on ego. It's based on the universal law. You throw a ball up in the air, it has to come down, or the planet revolves around the sun. Things just have a way of going around, coming around. And so one is to recognize the emotion or the feeling. I'm so disappointed They said yes, it was going to be done, and now because of being irresponsible, ignorant towards the real importance of the decision, so many lives were affected. As I processed that feeling, everyone, then I came to this conclusion that had to happen, that was something fixed, because I believe that we are born with some predestined plan that we don't really know of. But once I was able to say, well, that was fixed, so what is it that I'm supposed to realize at this moment? And that's where I ended up today. Like, what was it that I needed to realize? I don't have an answer, but on many occasions, whenever I ask this question, I always end up with, I'm supposed to be more loving. By being more loving, I'm less attached to outcomes, to circumstances, to people, to situations. So I hope that that somehow resonated with someone out there in the ethers because I'll tell you this, there's just so much happening that I think we really need to do some deep inner work. Today our guest is considered one of the greatest scholars and most sought-after speakers in the Jewish world today, yet his message is for all people. Rabbi Simon Jacobson is the author of the best-selling book, Toward a Meaningful Life, and the founding dean of the Meaningful Life Center based in Brooklyn, New York. His blueprint for modern-day life is based on 3,300 years of moral, spiritual, Kabbalistic, and historical wisdom. Now, Rabbi Jacobson has been interviewed on over 300 radio and TV shows, including CBS, CNN, PBS, MSNBC, Fox, and a whole lot more. He is also the chairman and publisher of the Algeminaire Journal, the fastest-growing Jewish newspaper in America, according to CNBC. 
We are so honored to welcome Rabbi Simon Jacobson to America Meditating Radio. Welcome, Rabbi. So glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. I've been soothed by your meditation and your words, very calming <laughs> voice. Oh, shalom. So and I you. thank you. I'm humbled. I'm humbled. Well, the pandemic has definitely disrupted millions, if not billions, of lives around the world. While we're witnessing personally here in the USA, Rabbi, political and racial divides and conflicts, it's been an interesting wake-up call, to say the least. What has the pandemic taught you about the human conditioning? Do you have any thoughts about what you think the long-term impact will be in our society? Yes, obviously, been thinking about it a lot. Whenever uh, our conventional security blankets and comfort zones, patterns, routines are disrupted, it really exposes the underbelly of our lives. And when things are riding well, many of us take it for granted, and we can just get by day by day. So though disruption is very unsettling, but on the other hand, it's a tremendous opportunity to get to know yourself because now you're no longer able to just rely on your crushes. You know, I'm going to a restaurant, I'm going to a baseball game, I'm going to work, school. So on an immediate level, it's very clear that people are turning inward. I've never seen such vulnerability and receptivity, frankly, to spiritual messages. I was speaking uh, to a group of uh, high school students a few months ago. I asked them, like, what are your top three priorities now? Interestingly, they said love, relationships, values. And I said, what would you have answered in January 2020? And they said, well, then we would have answered sexuality, video games, sports. Interesting. So I think that tells the whole story. And historically, it's very clear that uh, there's a Kabbalistic mystical concept said that between every time a new paradigm has to emerge, there has to be some void or vacuum in between. So in that sense, disruptions and upheavals are like the cracking of an egg before the chicken emerges. So I have no doubt that we are on the verge, especially when you include other disruptions going on, whether it's technology or the globalization of our lives, that we are on the verge of creating a new reality. And obviously, we still have to do the work. It doesn't happen automatically. But as you put it perfectly, it's a wake-up call. And like all wake-up calls, it needs a response. So on a personal level for you, how have you felt knowing that synagogues are closed, churches are closed, mosques are closed, spiritual places are closed? I'm going to be bold enough to say, didn't you remember that we always thought that when crisis or moments of crisis like this would occur, our religious temples or places would be open to salvage souls, one? But secondly, I know that we're doing it online, but... How did you feel knowing that even the churches and the mosques and the synagogues had to close? Did you ever have sort of a, what? What have I learned, God? What has my journey been about? And I'll tell you what I felt, but I want to hear from you first. <laughs> I'll tell you immediately. I'll be very, very blunt. I'll speak about myself in a moment. As growing up as a young man in a religious environment and going to synagogue and going to school and getting a very strong, strict religious, Jewish religious education. I'll be very honest. I was always by nature a skeptic. I was always challenging. I always looked at, are we doing this as conformists to a system? So I was always suspicious of man-made structures. And what I'm saying is that I always felt that the God is in the heart and soul of a human being and our synagogues, and our mosques, and our churches, and our temples, and whatever places or times are really meant to be environments where we're more conducive, maybe there's a synergy, but it's not the building that we worship. To use the words of the Bible, when God says, build me a sanctuary, interestingly, the next line, it says, and I will dwell among you. It doesn't say I will dwell in the sanctuary, in the structure. It's not the wood and the stones. So though it's true that uh, our houses of worship are important. Like I told somebody right when it happened, I said, so why do you go to synagogue? Or why do you go to church? Because you like to go because God wants you to go. And he thought about it and he said, maybe because I like it. <laughs> it's like my weekly pilgrimage. So I would say, look, God runs the show 
And let us say God says, I don't want you right now to go to a house of worship. I want you to be on a desert island and figure out how to worship me or how to speak to me on your own without any structures. That's how I see it. So when the pandemic broke, and I'm speaking for myself, I can't say I welcomed it because nobody likes disruption and especially the crisis and the people in my community who actually died. So I'm being sensitive to that. But on the other hand, in a way, internally, I celebrated the opportunity. You know, maybe this is an opportunity to find God without any other supports, without your clergy or your rabbi or your priest or your house of worship. So I know this may have been a counterintuitive response, but... No, not at all. For me, I remembered my meditation museums are closed here, and our 9,000 branches in 120 countries are closed. And so one of the things, imagine when you have to have an international call to determine what we're going to do with all your branches, right? It wasn't a small deal. But I remember what was interesting was we thought about the members and the directors because if they got sick or got ill, how could they shepherd the flock, so to speak? And then the second thing that came up was, but aren't we supposed to be opened when the flock needs support? And then we knew that online would definitely be there for individuals. And I had to say that it really turned my interpretation around, Rabbi. And exactly what you said, that God said, you don't really need a place, but wherever you are, you can worship me. You could be with me. You're supposed to have been with me anyway. And because you've not been with me is why we're in the mess that we're in. (laughs) It just feels like it's become a wake-up call for humanity. Now, you and I are witnessing in our country, in the United States of America, a pretty contentious election cycle. I mean, starting from 2015 to 2016, just so much has been happening in this country in the last five years. And it has only amplified Why do you think America has grown so politically divided? And what can ordinary people do to really help bridge this gap and restore some kind of a civility and decorum to heal our nation? Since we're being blunt and candid, I believe it's due to the long term, due to a certain godlessness that has settled in. And I would also say we've been lulled into a sense of overconfidence in our own institutions. And we've become self-reliant. Now, since World War II, we've been blessed to enjoy prosperity and growth and really have not had to fight for any values. As I mentioned before, people take for granted our gifts. What ends up happening often, you settle into comfort zones in the material world. You begin to lose sight of the sanctity of life, of respect for each other. I mean, I find it so disturbing that people rolling it together, the COVID-19 has attacked us all. And yet we can't have, as you point out, a civil uh, discussion. You know, why can't two people disagree, but both of us are divine souls, uh, using the words of the Declaration of Independence, all people are created equal. I use people just to make it more. And we have an alienable right. That fundamental principle that you and I both have a divine, indispensable role in this world. And we respect each other for that. And we're like indispensable musical notes in a large composition. Whatever analogy you use, I think we've lost sight of that fundamental point. And the pandemic is exposing it, as we talked earlier. And I think when it comes to, as you mentioned, contentious and politicization of things, people have turned everything into black and white. You're either for me or against me. Everything is like cowboys and Indians. And it's almost an unrealistic picture here. And I say to people who, for example, hate Trump or love Trump, I say, well, is there something in between? Maybe there's some good things, some bad things in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And I think, and we both probably identify with this, for me, I transcended simply by connecting to more of my spiritual roots. This week, actually, we read in the Bible the story of the great flood. So life is like a flood. The raging floodwaters of the media, of politics, of all the different conflicts. We need to build an ark for ourselves, which somewhat helps you rise above the waves by being surrounded by words, sacred words, spiritual words, uh, kindness, gentleness. Ultimately, that's what preserves us and gain, reclaim our fundamental humanity. And I think that is what's lacking. 
But it's interesting. Maybe the pandemic, for some strange reason, came perfectly in time to wake us up to this fact and realize that don't become part of the problem, become part of the solution. How do you guide individuals that perhaps don't really think for themselves and perhaps believe in everything that they're watching on television or in media without, you know, what you would say is fact check is one thing, but secondly for me, to check how my conscience feels as I look at this particular scenario for my own life. Like how does this make me feel to witness this and to respond to it, and what role can I play here to make this particular situation better for humanity? That's how I think. Now, it does mean that's how everybody thinks. But what would you tell individuals who just might be a little bit more innocent to the narrative, Rabbi, and they don't think for themselves? Once I was having dinner with, I won't tell you the names, I have the fortune of taking care of a lot of very important people in this country. One day we were having dinner. This was the time of the Iraq War, and somebody, few folks, very high up in government, very high up in corporate, just a lot of them are working with making these decisions, totally didn't even remember that Saddam Hussein was not behind the planes going in 9-11. And they had totally forgotten, and these were intelligent people who were actually behind the decision for even America going to war in the first place in those days. So I'm not just talking about those who are innocent and vulnerable and naive, but even some folks who we might deem supposed to be the smart ones are also realizing that they don't really remember or really think for themselves anymore. How do we stop this matrix where people are just under the influence of an illusion? This is my question. What would you advise us to do? Yeah, the million-dollar question. (laughs) So it's case by case. My answer is case by case and also step by step. We can't expect a type of cold turkey transformation of suddenly waking up from the matrix and realizing what the truth is. Each person is different, but I find a few points I would like to make. Number one is everyone, whether they're important or less important, and I think everybody's equally important, obviously, but I mean, they have a more prominent position or a less prominent position, has openings. Everybody needs love. Everyone needs nurturing. Everyone needs some spiritual uh, nourishment. And as such, there's always an opening. You have to find that opening and help someone on their terms. We shouldn't be dictating to people. That's one key thing. And I find when you start speaking with a certain type of compassion and empathy, you usually can find that opening. You know, someone shares with you, okay, I'm dealing with a challenging child or I'm dealing with a challenging relationship or other issues. The second thing is to help people become aware of how addicted they've become to this uh, inundation of this menu of constant streaming media. I try to advise people, especially if they're open to it, maybe you should shut off the internet or the television, at least when you wake up or before you go to sleep, and create some oasis in your life that's not so defined by all this information because we do get caught up in it. I remember counseling an individual and I was asking him, like, what do you really love? What are you passionate about? And he told me soap operas. He actually can't watch them all, so he records them. But he lives vicariously through soap operas. I tried to just make him aware, do you have a life independent of that? Just to make people aware that you may be hypnotized and completely right. consumed by something that is not your own life. You know, I love Oliver Wendell Holmes' line in The Voiceless, where he says, Most people die with their song still inside them. And I ask people, do you have a song inside you? And many start crying or, oh, yes, I once did when I was a teenager. I was idealistic. Then I got caught up in my life. Life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans, all those ideas. And I think it's to help people just give them a little taste of you can be you. You don't have to be part of the hurt and part of others. And each person in their own way. Now, there are people, as you said, that are very conformist. They just want to be told what to do. And they're going to find whoever superstar or or media broadcaster. And they're looking for others to tell them what to do. So you have to find small steps where you find that they can have some independence. That's the only way to break out of the matrix, as you put it. It's a big topic. And each person in their own situation. But I think if you're able to, and especially now due to the pandemic, because so much of our regular schedules have been disrupted, 
there's a true opening now. People are looking. Yes. They're seeking for something. Congratulations. You've authored the best-selling book, Toward a Meaningful Life. I'm curious, where were you inside when you were writing the book? <laughs> I always like to ask that question because I think it just says a lot in terms of what we're going through when we birth something that the world says, oh, I love that. Where were you inside at the time? Do you remember? Of course I remember. It's an excellent question. No one has ever asked me that question. I'm glad you did. A vulnerable place, but I'm happy to share. I was actually in a transition in my life because my great master and mentor, called the Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, had passed away in 1994. He had a stroke two years earlier. And I worked many years for him. I uh, worked closely with him writing and editing his talks. And I learned from him much in my life. You know, he was a true man of God, soulful person. So he was going through his own suffering, the stroke, and then his death. So in a way, I was revisiting my own mission in life of what I should be doing. I was uh, 34, 35 years old. And I was uh, looking at everything in my life till now where the Lord is leading me points in times when you take a junctures in your life where you have to make a decision where you're going forward. I had to almost rewrite my mission statement. And the book was very much an expression of my own personal purpose and mission of bringing the teachings that I was blessed to receive to the larger world. I was blessed with being somewhat of an interface or a channel, taking wisdom and ideas that uh, can be esoteric or inaccessible to many and turning it into a language that makes it very relevant and personal which has really been my mission my entire life, but I found a new way of doing it through the book and through my other work, which is really being a bridge between the spiritual and the secular. Rabbi, that's me too. I'm just one of those people like, please don't put me on one side where I have to really lose sense of balance because I know that we're both really wanting to understand from each other how we can be best, how we can really be our better selves. And how am I going to learn about me if I don't know the opposite side of the spectrum? That, okay, you think completely different than I do, but what is it that I'm here to learn with you and from you and vice versa? I love the concept of being like a bridge between the secular and the spiritual. Share with us a little bit about what was one of your favorite parts in the book, like especially when your pen went down or your finger stopped typing (laughs) on your laptop. What was that special chapter that even till today it has stood out for you? One is a chapter on youth because it very much captured my own journey. As I mentioned, I was a restless soul. In retrospect, I probably was a rebel without a cause in my teenage years. And I was always challenging the norms and challenging the givens and status quo, wondering how many people are just programmed to be this way, how many are really open-minded free thinkers. And in my own way, I was very rebellious in my mind and in my heart. I read a lot of different disciplines and different uh, schools of thought from east to west. I was in that powerful place, but really didn't have any direction. And it was a time when I heard a talk given by my teacher where he spoke about the rebellion in young people. He's talking about the 60s and essentially saying that many people misunderstand they think when young people rebel against the standard, against the establishment, that it's something dangerous. And indeed, he said, no, it's actually the fire in the soul that refuses to conform to the status quo and wants to change the world in some way and is frustrated. And it's literally like the story of my life. So the challenge, he said, is how do you take those fires and harness them toward a spiritual revolution instead of something destructive? And this, in a way, set the tone for my own personal journey in life. So the chapter Youth in, the, in Toward a Meaningful Life captures that essential theme, the fire in your soul type of idea. And as you get older and more mature and more seasoned, never let that fire be extinguished or weakened. Just learn to harness it in new ways. So that was one that was really very powerful for me. Another one is the last chapter in the book called Redemption. I remember when I was writing it, being the last chapter, I felt it really has to be like the punchline. It really has to be more powerful than all the previous chapters. And I had that writer's block, as you mentioned. It didn't come to me. I didn't have that breakthrough. So I remember thinking and thinking. And I knew I will get it, but keep on, you have to have the frustration that precedes 
the creative surge. And I remember going home, 2 o'clock in the morning, all frustrated, and I lied down. And I said, let me rest a bit. And I remember around 5 a.m. I jumped out of bed, and I had it. You know that moment, that epiphany, yeah, uh-huh. That, uh-huh. That, that joy, that uh-huh, <laughs> right. And I had it. It was an analogy that I had read somewhere, and it was perfect for this. Connected to what you asked me about earlier, this is how I began the chapter. Imagine living your entire life in a dark cave, and you convinced that this is reality. And one day somebody tells you, no, this is a dark cave. You see the light at the mouth of the cave? That's where real reality is. And you suddenly realize that everything you thought was real is only a surface level. There's a whole other dimension. And that became the gist of the chapter. But I remember the epiphany like today. We're talking now uh, over 25 years ago. That resonating sense of, ah, that's it. Speaks to me and it will speak to others. So I'm glad you asked those questions. Let me ask you, where did you learn to ask such uh, pointed questions? That's what I want to know. I just love learning. I love learning from individuals who I believe have walked the talk and are genuine about their narratives. Because I want to be better, Rabbi. I want to be a great example of the divine, and I want to do it genuinely and truthfully. That's all. Usually, I don't want to pry, but since you're asking me questions, sometimes (laughs) people come to these deeper truths through grace and sometimes through pain. That's why I was wondering. But you feel free to share. It's your program. (laughs) So the Meaningful Life Center, let's talk a little bit about that. It has been called a spiritual Starbucks. I love that, by the New York Times. Could you tell us a little bit about the center and its mission? And I can't wait until all of this lockdown is over to come and visit you out there. I think it will be so special. Where are you based, if I may ask? Where are you? We're in Washington, D.C. Not far from New York. It really encapsulates... Uh, very much what we've been discussing. It's on the name of my book, Toward a Meaningful Life. Due to the success of the book and the demand and need for more, started creating more materials and programs and events and so on that, uh, that do exactly that, bridge the spiritual and the secular. I love a line that I use in the book. It's called, Birth is God saying you matter, absolutely matter. So that became, in a sense, the mission, teaching people how they, they find their indispensable mission in life. And the reason Starbucks, interestingly, is because it's a concept based on the thing called the third space. You know, people have two spaces in their lives, their work and their homes. I think it was Barnes & Noble first and then Starbucks that said, let's create a third space, like a social space where you can hang out, have a coffee, see your friends, sit in your laptop. So I thought of the idea of creating a third space as being a spiritual space. Not obviously escaping or avoiding home and work, but just a place where you can find yourself in a way. And then bring that back to your home and work. So I try to create that type of environment. Because at the end of the day, I think you used the word earlier before I got on, love. We begin with love in our lives and we're always pursuing love. For nine months, we're completely submerged in the embryonic fluids of our mother's womb. And then as young children, nurturing, of course, the connection, the attachment, the touch of our parents is uh, the most powerful thing that shapes us into confident adults. As Frederick Douglass said, it's far easier to bring up a healthy child than to fix a broken adult. And the rest of our lives, if we haven't had that, we're seeking that love. So I would say Meaningful Life Center's purpose and mission is to create an oasis of love in your life, a place where you can be comfortable with yourself, with your soul, celebrate your vulnerability. I like that expression. And now, due to the pandemic, of course, we moved everything online, so we do a lot of online programming, classes, uh, seminars, uh, you name it, text, using all the social media platforms. And actually, I was like up to speed because I have in my own home, I have a little studio which I use. I just broadcast whenever I have a cosmic itch, I get on and I just uh, Instagram or Facebook or, or YouTube or you name it. <laughs> I come from an age free technology, you have to remember. I oh, no, I love it. I love it. We just <laughs> followed you on your Instagram and your Facebook page. And I want to go back to something that you said that touched my heart because, you know, I've been taking care of my mother who has dementia and Alzheimer's. And she comes from a very interesting background because she was orphaned at seven. And 
in a developing country, then you don't really get a chance to process what you're going through and being shoved around in various orphanages with your little sisters and you being the big sister. She just went through a lot. She's got a lot of broken pieces that she's been trying to mend in this whole life. And as I watch myself in this position with her for the last few years, taking care of her, making sure she's okay, she's got everything that she could ever imagine, she has nothing to worry about, I've found myself within the last maybe year just feeling like, have I really ever had a parent? And I was just observing it. I know so many amazing people. And when I look at the way their mother and their fathers are with them, I go, wow, that looks awesome. I don't think I ever got that. And at the same token, I'll catch myself and say, but this is your karmic destiny. There must have been a reason why this is your creation. So what is it that you are here to learn? What is it that you're here to give, to bestow, to share? What is it that you're willing to just appreciate and say this is really what it is? So I would say that maybe I didn't fully get all of that care. And I'm not saying that I remember anything dramatic happening in my life. I do sometimes wonder how did she take care of me coming from such bruises And yet I don't know, was I really taking care of her? It's just something I've gotten used to. So these have been interesting questions that I've been percolating in my consciousness. Is it sometimes that even if you don't, Rabbi, have that secure setting, especially in the United States of America, in the Western countries, we have a smorgasbord of unique ways of parenting, so to speak, Versus if I go back to my Indian side, my father's from Delhi, my parents on my father's side are all Indians, and they have a completely different form of family values. They're very focused on education, they're focused on family, they're focused on making sure values are there, and I remember that side. I remember that side of my father. When I would go to my mother's side, it was a completely different world, like the bridge between the secular and the spiritual, there were two different worlds that I would witness growing up. So my question is, even if you don't have that, is it hopeless for someone to actually do a turnaround and become a really good citizen? Because and maybe I'm just not saying it truthfully, because I know my father and everything were great, and she was great too. But I'm for the first time within the last year, I've been asking, did I really even have a parent? It's a very interesting question. And to what extent have I really understood what it really means to be caring, loving, unlimited, unconditional? Any thoughts? Thank you for sharing that. That was very touching. First of all, the word helpless is completely not in my lexicon. There's no such word in my dictionary. There's no such thing as helpless or hopeless, I think, is the word you use, hopeless. The mere fact that you have a soul means there's always hope. Even if a person has gone through the worst, I like to compare it, even if the arteries have been somewhat blocked, but the heart is beating. The question is how do we access, say, a person growing up in a very abusive home, God forbid, dysfunctional, did not receive nurturing and love from both parents or absentee parents. Yes, is it challenging? Of course it's challenging. But you have to build your own life and your own love, and there's always hope. There's always a way of bypassing. There's always a way of reaching. It takes effort. The end result, I will tell you, without question, unequivocally, those people that have gone through the fire and come through it are always more refined than those that did not. So I'm not saying it's a blessing. I wish everybody has just a beautiful life and an easy life, but... These challenges tend to bring out unbelievable strengths. So that's one point I want to make. Regarding yourself, just from our conversations, if I had no idea of what your childhood was like, look at you. You are a shining light. You are helping people. I don't know what demons you may have within yourself and what kind of things you agonize about. But the bottom line, you've not allowed yourself to be defined by it, even if you have that. And that, to me, is a deep tribute. And for all you know, As much as your mother has bruises and her challenges, perhaps she had something really intact that she passed on to you that was almost like unconscious that you're not even aware of that is giving you tremendous strength today. Being orphaned, of course, I'm sure was was really horrible. But it could have well brought out a dimension 
in her that when she mothered you in her own way, gave you something that you conventionally would not have received. Those are my immediate reactions. Thank you for that, because I have to tell you that's what I felt, that despite the fact that I don't recognize if the best parenting was offered, there must have been something in her that still protected me, still made me sort of normal. I think I'm normal. I don't know if normal is actually a compliment. <laughs> That's in, true, in too. Who wants to be normal what, uh, in these times? Like they say they that is normal, so true. You know, the main thing is that you just channel your insanity toward good causes. That's the thing. This is so true. I love it. I have been just enjoying I feel like we could talk for ages. As we come to a close to our wonderful time together, I just have a few words that I want to throw out to you because I'd be curious to hear what your... Um, definition or meaning of them might be. You ready? Um, yes, all ready. <laughs> On your mark, get set, go. What is soul to you? Soul is mission. It's like the author infusing you with the purpose of your life. Your soul is the divine author embedding in your DNA why you're here in this world. And what is your definition of God? Can I share a story? <laughs> Do we have time for that? Or, yes, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, Please. okay. Many years ago, I was giving a class to a group of people from the arts and entertainment industry. Very spiritual, but not in any way religious or traditional in any fashion. And I realized I may be at a disadvantage because here I am looking like a rabbi and they may be stereotyping me. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'd be an irrelevant Hebrew school teacher or some uh, rabbi that they, they used to mock. So I decided I'll try language without using the word God or any other religious terms. Instead of God, I use the word the essence of it all. Particularly New Age people, group, I would use words like um, undefined layers of unconscious energy or something like that. True reality. And instead of uh, any type of religious uh, guidebook or the Bible, I use words like blueprint. And instead of doing good deeds, I use words like making connections. And instead of redemption, I use destination. So here I was waxing eloquent about connecting to the essence of it all, following a blueprint, making connections to the point of total and seamless fusion between the inner and the outer form and function, body, soul. I'm telling the story quickly. At the end, afterwards, I went on like this for weeks after weeks, and people were really mesmerized. One day, one of the persons was in the rock industry, rock and roll, comes over to me and says, are you talking about God? And I said, yes, but shh, don't spoil it for the others. So <laughs> bottom line, the word God is one of the most misunderstood and misused and abused words. For me, God is the essence of it all. If you were to strip everything from its outer layers and get to the core of it all and beyond, it's not just the sum total of existence, it's beyond, that's God. And I'm comfortable saying that. I don't need any nursery school imagery that many of us have, like a guy with a long white beard on, in heaven striking us with lightning when we misbehave. And I'll say one more thing. One of the great uh, Hasidic masters once told a self-proclaimed atheist, he said to him, the God you don't believe in, I don't believe in either. So it's an that. excellent I question. That. And I would, I would I challenge that. us all to define God perhaps in new yeah. ways, because the old ways usually are not really worth discussing. As you can see, I'm pretty passionate about this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we both are. Religion. Distorted religion is about man-made bureaucracies and control and judgment and anger and punitiveness and guilt and so on. True religion, as I understand it, is a deep spiritual connection to your soul, to your life's purpose, to God, as you understand God. And it's all about really free-spiritedness. It's not about conformity and about all other things that people associate with religion. So religion is not just ritual. It's the SPI before ritual, the spirit within the ritual. Rituals are fine, but they need to be infused with the soul. I love that. Karma. In the Jewish thought, there's the concept of the word vibe is the right word. Mazel is sometimes used. It's a Hebrew word that means a type of destiny. I don't believe in something's predestined exactly the end result, but you definitely have predispositions. So there are times in the year or times in your life where 
you'll have particular challenges, sometimes more difficult, sometimes easier. So I see karma as being part of the waves, the twists and turns of life that we have to learn to navigate. Rabbi Simon Jacobson. <laughs> you asked me to define that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Okay, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. I would get rid of all the titles and I would say basically a soul on a physical journey trying his best to make this world a better place. I love that. Can I tell you I have enjoyed our time together so much? Feelings are mutual. It's beautiful. We could talk forever. Yes, I think we will. I think we will. To be continued for sure. Any final comments that you'd like to leave our incredible listeners? Any final words of wisdom that you would like to share with them? Yes, I would. Um, Firstly, our conversation was not, not just a conversation. I feel it was like planting seeds that will yield fruit. Whenever two people come together, in stark contrast to so many of the conflicts we have today, create beautiful synergy, which is what I feel we've done here. It's just very soothing, very nurturing, and I felt that way. And I hope all your listeners feel that way as well. Whenever you want, you're inspired. The litmus test of inspiration is not the inspiration. It's what happens afterwards. So I want to share with all your listeners something I say to myself every day. Now, you were put here in this world for a purpose. Life is precious. Every moment is a gift. It's so sad and, and tragic when we squander opportunities. Every person you meet, every place you travel to, everyone you interact with online, however, is a tremendous opportunity to generate light. We need to be agents of light. So you have to ask yourself in every situation, what can I do to make this a little better? Even if a conversation or situation may be contentious, always ask yourself at the end, what positive energy can be generated from this interaction? And I think if each of us feel that way, and we're not just bystanders or spectators, but actually feel we're players in the game, we're proactive and interactive, we really can create what they call the butterfly effect, the ripple effect, and perhaps transform a viral pandemic into a viral pandemic of goodness and kindness that will have a ripple impact on the entire universe. I feel honored to be able to be part of this journey with you and with each person listening to this. And as we intersect, we can each cross-pollinate and create even greater beautiful good in this world. Well said. Rabbi, thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of the day and to be continued. Absolutely. It was a pleasure, honor, humble to have this conversation with you. Thank you mm-hmm. for having me. Same here. Thank you. Take care. You too. There are some of those interviews and conversations that we have on America Meditating Radio that really go deep. It impacts you for a very, very long time and this was definitely one of them. Hope you've enjoyed our intimate conversation with Rabbi Simon Jacobson. And for more information, just go to MeaningfulLife.com, his website. He offers a daily message on his YouTube link. We just followed him on Instagram and on Facebook. And we're looking forward to growing more with him as collectively we move towards a very much more of a meaningful life. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us. Remember, no one can take away your happiness unless you give them permission, and we really are here to love each other the same. So let's get into the habit now. Come on. Let's just become a little bit more loving. All right, here's Kristen Hoffman, The Rose. Take care, everyone.
I'm Sister Jenna. You've been listening to America Meditating Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Did you enjoy that conversation? Because you can also listen to it on Spotify or on iTunes, 24-7, anytime, anywhere. I do trust we all have inner power to become our very best. When we listen with curiosity to learn more, we grow. So thanks so much for tuning in, and do be easy on yourself. Take care.